Hey guys, this morning, this first Sunday morning of daylight savings time, I got the sleeves rolled up because we are heading out on a short spring break road trip together. One that I hope you'll join us on over the next four weeks. The destination, well, my friends, the destination is life itself. New life, eternal life, abundant life, resurrected life, rediscovered life, our, our great elusive hope. And together, we're going searching for a fruitful, meaningful, purposeful, peaceful, joyful, God-filled life. When are we going to get there? Well, our shared journey is going to come to its end on Easter Sunday. After all, what better day to arrive right at our destination of resurrected life than Easter Sunday? And so today, today we begin a conversation, a conversation that has to do with our shared fascination, believe it or not, with roads. It's a new series that we're going to examine, what I'm calling the four roads to Easter. Now make no mistake about it, for maybe all of time, roads have, well, they, they've, they've been more than blacktop or macadam. Roads have, for those of us of the human persuasion, they've always meant something metaphorically more. For some of us, roads represent the way out. For others, they're the way home. Roads are the way we get out of here and the way we get over there. Roads, they hold promises of, of better days up ahead or the light of day just around the bend. They're the palette upon which our artists paint, the script upon which our songwriters score. You think I'm exaggerating? Robert Frost, uh, Road of the Road Not Taken, Scott Peck of The Road Less Traveled. The Beatles, they sang of the long and winding road. Sheryl Crow said every day was a winding road, and Roger Miller, he said he was king of the road. Bruce Springsteen sang of the promise of Thunder Road. Michael Landon starred in Highway to Heaven. ACDC sang of a highway with a different direction. And so it should come as, as no surprise that, that the author of life himself in the scriptures would use our fascination with roads to underscore and help us to understand the way to life. It was the psalmist who wrote, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. But the writer of Proverbs, this ancient book of wisdom, he warns that there is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. Hmm. <laughs> Isaiah. Isaiah, Israel's great prophet. Isaiah wrote, this is what the Lord says, he who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. He wrote that a highway will be there, a roadway, and it'll be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it but it'll be for, it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. I could go on and on. That's how powerful the metaphor is. Isaiah, again, he wrote, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. How about this from the prophet Jeremiah? Set up for yourself road marks. Place for yourself guideposts. Direct your mind to the highway, the way by which you went. John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist came preaching, prepare the way for the Lord. And Jesus himself, Jesus famously warned us to enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. 
And guys, that's what this series is about. This series is about how do we do that? How do we prepare the way? How do we find the small gate? How do we take the narrow road that leads to life? And my premise is, my premise, well, my premise is what it always is, which is, is that if we find, we will find life as we follow Jesus and his ways and his path, and that's what we're gonna do. Over these next four weeks, we're gonna examine these four roads that Jesus willingly physically, and I believe metaphorically chose to take during Holy Week. They are, in sequential order, the road into Jerusalem, the path to Gethsemane, the Via Della Rosa, and the road to Emmaus. So let's get on the road. Luke, this Greek physician turned historian who set out to record a, a detailed record of the ministry of Jesus, he, actually all four of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they record this event that I'm describing to you today. Luke, he records it with significant detail, this first of the four roads. You know, the story of the road to Jerusalem, you know it, you just call it by a different name. You refer to it as Palm, as Palm Sunday. So now, as I say every week, let's enter the story. Luke writes, as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt. Other gospel writers here tell us this isn't just a colt, but it is the colt of a donkey. You'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it, which is super interesting, right? Imagine you're in town, maybe down on Main Street in Chester, and you have your car parked along the side of the road, and you see a couple of knuckleheads opening the door, hopping in, and beginning to hotwire the car right there in broad daylight. And so you come running and up and ask, probably not in the same kind way, what the heck are you doing? And their response to you is simply, the Lord needs it. See, I'm thinking your response would be like my response. It would include a quick call to 911 and me jumping on and holding on to the hood. You might think, well, that's because it was a donkey. Maybe if it had been a horse, they wouldn't have let it go. Uh, it was just a donkey. I don't know, I, I have a Kia, I don't have a Lambo, but I'm pretty sure I would still not say, well, have at it, it's just a Kia. You see, what's happening in Israel, what was going on in the neighborhood was that they were preparing for Passover, and Passover in Israel always brought with it, for the people of Israel, the promise of and the expectation for Israel's long-awaited Messiah. Every year, everyone wondered that maybe it would be this year that the Lord would come. And at this point, Jesus had picked up some renown around town. And most importantly, and Matthew points this out in his gospel, part of the messianic prophecy in Israel that everybody knew, according to the prophet Zechariah, was this. See, your king, he comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, John tells us that the disciples themselves didn't get this yet, but maybe, 
Maybe the owner who hears this, he, he puts two and two together. He's seen and heard of Jesus. He, he knows it's Passover time. He hears something about the Lord needing it and a donkey and riding into Jerusalem. And, and maybe, just maybe this is it. This is finally the year, Israel's Messiah. Our Messiah, after all of these years, he's got to be thinking, maybe this is it, he's come. And, and so I'm guessing at this point, it's not just the disciples returning with the donkey, but the owner, and, and along the way, they begin to pick up crowds. They grow, and they, they all head out of town to escort this donkey to Jesus. Luke continues that they brought it to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on the colt and put him on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road, and when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices. And this is the familiar scene. This is the Palm Sunday scene that many of us grew up in Sunday school with. Maybe if you were a little kid waving your little palm branch, like the people rushing out to greet Jesus. Why palms? Well, it's interesting. It was a common practice in the ancient world to welcome home a king or a conquering war hero by laying out a path of branches for him to ride on or walk in on, kind of like what we do with a red carpet today. It was for the Romans under whose oppression they were suffering, who themselves, it was the Romans that honored champions of their games and of the military with palm branches. So it seemed to make perfect sense. Now let me give you one more detail on that story. Luke, this detailed analyst, records, he doesn't just tell us the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices. He tells us why everybody began to praise God in loud voices. And it is not because of their love for Jesus. And it is not because of their faith in God. Why this parade of palms? Luke writes, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. For all the miracles they had seen. You see, here's the deal. The crowd comes rushing out to Jesus with an expectation of and an agenda for Jesus. Because that crowd, that crowd, well, they're like, a lot like our crowd, me included. We are oftentimes a people with an expectation of and an agenda for Jesus. Everybody's cheering for them, but they all had an an agenda for them. Hosanna, Jesus, come and and take care of me. Uh, Hallelujah, Jesus, come and heal me. Come and deliver me. Come and feed me. Come and bless me. Jesus, we're so glad you're here. Now is the time, come in and overthrow the Romans. Come on in and take back our temple. Come on in and get rid of the foreigners. Come on in and, and rearrange the circumstances of my life. Make it the way I want it to be. See, if you do, we'll all shout Hosanna if you do what we want you to do. Now, why do I think that? Well, the first reason is because I know myself. I know why I tend to run to Jesus. I know my own heart. I tend to walk towards Jesus in praise and love and run towards Jesus in need. The second reason is that it's likely many of these exact same people that are cheering today, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
that in only a few days, when given the choice by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, to free from execution either Jesus or Barabbas, a man guilty of murder or insurrection, they shout, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. And why? What changed? Well, well the answer is pretty simple. Jesus didn't meet their expectations, and Jesus didn't fulfill their agenda. You see, and many of you know this, they wanted a conquering king, but what the coming days would prove is that they got a a suffering servant. They, They wanted a military king, and what they got was a prince of peace. They wanted him to pick up the sword, and what they got was to put it down. You see, they wanted someone to stand up. What they got was someone who stood silent. They knew the Messiah would come on a donkey, but they never put together that it was because he wasn't coming on a horse. See, kings ride into town on horses. Military leaders ride in on stallions. Humble servants ride in on donkeys. See, the hidden part of the story, though it's plain for everyone to see, the part of this story that nobody tells our children when they're in Sunday school, when they're busy teaching you to raise the palm and shout Hosanna, The troubling fact is is something Luke records. He says that while the whole town was celebrating, as as Jesus approached Jerusalem and as he saw the city, he wept over it. The whole city is whipped into a frenzy. There's a big party going on and and Jesus is is crying. He looks at the city and he he says, if if you, even you, Jerusalem, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. There's an old song that goes, it's my party and I'll cry if I want to, cry if I want to. Jesus was crying right in the middle of the party. Why? Well, John looking back on these events, sometimes later, would write it this way. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, and his own received him not. Guys, imagine this. He was right there with them. God was as present as he was ever going to be with his people. The ones who said they wanted him, the ones who said they welcomed him, yet they missed him. And why? Because of their expectations and their agendas. Those things, expectations and agendas, hid Jesus from their eyes. And Jesus weeps because he knows what they're missing him is going to mean for them. For the city of Jerusalem, it would mean Roman destruction in the coming years. And for you and I, I think he weeps over us too because the risks are just as significant. You see, this first road trip this week, this road into Jerusalem, this road that eventually ends with renewal and in resurrection life, it begins, well, it begins with, ironically, a death. A death to our ways and our plans, to our expectations and our agendas. And that's why this road is, well, Jesus said narrow. That's why the gate is small. That's why so few take it. 
And so the question that we need to ask ourselves as we start on a road trip together towards resurrected life is actually the same question that needs to be asked for every road trip you've ever taken. Walk out the door with your driving buddy and the first question is this, who's driving? And you wanna know why? Because whoever is driving is the one in control. In the neighborhood where I live, there are two ways once you get into our neighborhood, once you pull in that, that you can take to get to our house. One is faster than the other. Now, it doesn't seem like it should be. It seems like it should be, in long, it should be longer. Intuitively, you would think there's no way. But I have proven to Joan, my wife, over and over and over, time after time after time, that my way is shorter. Yet, despite my continued opposition, and right in the face of repeated, well-documented evidence, she will take this other way every time, even though I know she knows it takes longer. And it's for this reason. Well, it's for that reason and the fact that I don't believe in bathroom breaks on trips of four hours or less that I always drive. Because you see, you see, if, if I have the keys, I'm in control of which way we go, of, of what route we take, of the stops we're gonna make. My thinking is my keys, my car, my way. But you see, to get on the road that leads and ends in life, you gotta start on the road to Jerusalem. And the road to Jerusalem begs a very difficult question. So who's driving? There was a pretty famous saying years ago. It was one of those bumper sticker lines. I saw it on cars when I was a kid. Jesus is my co-pilot. See, and if Jesus is my co-pilot, you know what that makes me? Well, that's right, it makes me the pilot. And I'll tell you right now, if I'm the pilot, Jerusalem, along with its arrest and trial and conviction and crucifixion, they are not a choice destination. But isn't this the way we tend to go through this road trip called life with us in the driver's seat? Come on along, I'll show you what I mean. Gonna hop in the car together. And so we're on the, the road towards life. A life of our own choosing, a destination of our own choosing. We're trying to make our way there. Now, at some point in this life, on that destination towards our end, for some of us, when we're kids because of the faith of our family, or for others, maybe like me, right, that got a little bit older and, well, this trip wasn't turning out the way I was hoped it would, and it's not going as fast as I thought it would. You know what we do? We invite Jesus into the car with us, right here. Enter co-pilot Jesus. We love co-pilot Jesus because co-pilot Jesus' purpose in our minds is to help us reach our preferred destination. That's his job. In fact, let's be honest here. That's why we let him in the car in the first place. Otherwise, we might not have even slowed down. And we tend to think, gosh, it's handy to have co-pilot Jesus in the car right here in the passenger seat because you never know when you're going to need his services. Like, what would happen if, if on this trip I were to run into some kind of issue, a speed bump, maybe a health crisis or trouble? Well, that's why I have Jesus right here on the trip. I, I just break him out and, and he can heal me up because you know why? I got to get back on the road, man. I've got plans, you know, plans, places to go, things to see. Now, every once in a while, things, well, things don't go the way I was hoping. Maybe at work, right? 
Well, when things don't go right at work, have no fear. Co-pilot Jesus is right here. And see, Jesus' job is to help me navigate my way to the top of the corporate ladder. And you know why? I got to get there because I got career plans. I got expectations for what I'm going to achieve and earn and have and be known for. Oh, it's so good to have them along for the ride. You know, on this great road trip of life, you know what I'm going to need, though, Jesus, as I've reflected back on this a little bit, I'm going to, I'm going to need a, a traveling partner with me. I mean, I, I, know, I know you're here with me, Jesus, but, but you know, sometimes I, I get lonely, and you know what, I, I think I, I'd like to have a partner to join me on, on the trip. Now, now, not yet, not yet, Jesus. I'm in my 20s. It's still a little early. I got some oats I want to sow. So how about you bring her along in early 30s? I think that would be good. That, that, that's about right. And, and, uh, and, and listen, I'm, I'm going to need you to, to hop back there if it's okay, uh, because, you know, Jesus, I mean, I really, I really love this girl. I, I'd like her to be right here. And, and heck, I mean, you're just going to be right back there. You're still going to be in the car with us. So I, th- I think that, that'll be fine. So if you just get back there, we'll be on our way. And it just occurs to me, Jesus, somewhere up the road, now that I've got this wife, I, I think I'm going to want to have a family, right? You know, so, some kids, two or three of them, uh, maybe 2.3 of them. That would be probably the perfect amount. Maybe one boy and one girl. I, I think that would work out well, Jesus. Make sure, if you would, that they're handsome and they're pretty, um, or perfectly healthy. I'm going to need them perfectly healthy, athletic, and, and smart. Uh, it'd be great if they'd be high achievers later and really good sleepers now. Um, scholarships, that might be something I, I, would, I would ask you to keep in mind. That would be great. Um, and, you know, it makes me realize, Jesus, that it's getting kind of crowded back there now with the car seats and, you know, all, all the stuff. I, I, would you mind just shoving over a little bit to make, make some room for some more things? I know it's getting crowded. If you just put that big screen on your lap and maybe squish over towards the door, I think, I think there'll be plenty of room for some more things, if that's all right. <sighs> you know, things are... Getting a little crazy around here, Jesus, with all the, all the work and the wife and the kids and the job, you know. I think I'm, I'm going to need to take a little pit stop here if it's okay, Jesus. I can blow off a little steam, if you know what I mean, Jesus. So, uh, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm just going to pull this thing over here for a couple of minutes. If you wouldn't mind just hopping out. It's just, it's just for a day or two. I mean, there's going to be plenty of room. I'm going to come back and get you. But if you would just hop out now, and, and I, I'll be back. I'm going to need you for the ride, but I'm going to come back in two, three days tops. I'll pick you right back up. If you would just wait here, that would be great, Jesus. And then when I come back, I, I promise I'll, I'll squeeze you in somewhere because I'm going to need you for the ride. You know, after all, it's, it's my keys and, and my car. It's my way in Jerusalem, Jesus is. It's not really on my radar screen. That's kind of funny, right? Until it's not. Because the road to real life, resurrected life, renewed life, the life that Jesus offers us of peace and purpose and promise See, it starts off on the road to Jerusalem, and it starts off with a big question. Who's driving? 
I, I like how John Ortberg put it. He said, if Jesus is driving, I'm not in charge of my life anymore. I'm not in control of it. See, if he's driving, I'm not in charge of my wallet anymore. If I put him in control, then it's no longer a matter of giving some money now and then when I'm feeling generous or when, uh, when more of it's coming into my life. No, because now it's his wallet. That's a scary thing. See, if Jesus is driving, I'm not in charge of my ego anymore, right? I, I'm no longer have the right to satisfy every self-centered ambition because it's his agenda now. It's his life. If he's driving the car, I'm not in charge of my mouth anymore. I don't, I don't get to gossip and flatter, cajole, deceive, rage, intimidate, manipulate, exaggerate. I get out of the driver's seat and I hand the keys over to him. See, I'm fully engaged. and In fact, I'm more alive than I've ever been before. But it's not my life anymore. It's his. And so this is our question as this Palm Sunday approaches. When King Jesus gets celebrated once again, when we all start waving our palm branches, the road to Jerusalem has a big old question. Who's driving your life? Have you ever surrendered the keys? Is Jesus just in the car? I mean, be honest now, is he just doing a ride along or is he driving? Have you ever said to him, all things considered, Lord, I'm going to give you the keys to my life. Jesus, take the wheel. Your keys, your car, your life. You know, Carrie Underwood, she made like a billion dollars with that song. That song is the song that can bring you life. Jesus is very clear about this. There is no way for a human being to come to God that does not involve surrender. You find statements of Jesus teaching like this all over the scripture. Matthew told us that Jesus said, whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Jesus put it this way another time, I'll tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. It lives. Or he put it most famously another way, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Because the road into Jerusalem you see, the road into Jerusalem would lead Jesus and the disciples to the most famous dinner party ever held, the Last Supper, where Jesus would share with these same disciples, the ones that had just cried out Hosanna to his name, he would share with them the new covenant, the new way to God through grace, by faith, and his atoning sacrifice for our sins. It was, it was a remarkable moment, really. As Jesus sat with them, knowing the hour of his crucifixion was drawing nigh, as he told them of his love for them and that his body would be broken for them, his blood would be shed for them, there were two things miraculously happening right at that moment around the table. Luke tells us that it was just at that point a dispute arose among the disciples as to which of them would be considered the greatest. I mean, you can't make that up. Yeah, yeah, that's all great, Jesus. Thanks for all that. That's all well and good. Now back to my agenda. Uh, what do you got to do to be in charge here? And in a threat of that moment, Jesus, one of the 12, he's off betraying uh, Judas. He's off betraying Jesus to the chief priests and the temple guards. Now when I say the word Judas today, that name carries with a lot of baggage, but it didn't around the table that night. Jesus, Judas was likely one of the most respected disciples. How do I know that? Because Judas was the one, according to John, elected to carry the coin purse. He was trusted with the movement's money. Guys, here's Judas's truth and our truth. 
Judas did not betray Jesus because Judas was an exceptionally evil person. He was no different than anybody else. Judas betrayed Jesus because he was frustrated with Jesus' actions. Jesus was not doing what Judas thought he should be doing on the schedule that Judas had in mind. Jesus was not meeting his expectations. Jesus was not fulfilling Judas' agenda. See, see, Judas, just like the rest of the crowd at the parade, thought Jesus should be about overthrowing Rome and ending Israel's suffering. And look, it isn't just Judas. Matthew tells us that the events of that night would cause all of the disciples to fall away. There'd be none around. J.D. Greer has this great observation about what was going on about Judas and about us. He says that Judas had a price. So do we. For Judas, if Jesus wouldn't deliver justice to Judas on his schedule and get rid of his oppressors, then Judas wasn't going to follow. For him, like us, there's this thought of what would be the point if he's not going to do what I asked him into the car to do. And so when Jesus didn't perform, Judas abandoned him for 30 pieces of silver. And the question that Judas's life presents to each of us is, what's your price? Here's another way of asking it. What does Jesus have to do for you to retain your loyalty? What are the conditions you have for following him? Here's the truth. Most of us know people who have stopped following Jesus, who gave up on him because he didn't do what they thought he should have done. He didn't meet their expectations. He didn't fulfill their agendas. Why? Because they prayed and, and their marriage still failed. They begged, but their kids didn't make the team. Uh, the person they prayed for wasn't healed. And of, of course, all these things seem like reasonable and good requests, right? So the question is, when the job goes to someone else or your kid gets cut or the person doesn't make it, well, for a lot of people, that's when they're out. What's the point to the co-pilot if he isn't helping me on my trip? There's an old saying that says, the value of something is shown by what you're willing to give up for it. See, if you'll walk away from Jesus for something he does or doesn't do, for not fulfilling your expectations or meeting your agenda, that's his value to you. That's his worth to you. Those things are your 30 pieces of silver. You see, Judas was like so many of us. He was a conditional Christian. His following had a condition attached to it. He was a consumer Christian. He had something he wanted from Jesus, and it had a price attached to it. Are you? Do we? I mean, how easy is it for us to miss Jesus in our midst? How completely he can be covered over by our expectations, hidden under our agendas. The road towards Jerusalem begs the question of you, who is driving? Because only one driver is capable of making the way towards life. The road to Jerusalem, it demands from each of us what it did every disciple that day, the same thing. The road to Jerusalem demands surrender. You and I are broken and sinful and stubborn people. It's funny, in the Old Testament, God keeps referring to people like you and I as stiff-necked. That's not the whole truth about us. I know that. But it is the truth. See, we, like every person at that Last Supper, we too are self-centered and self-promoting, often like Judas in secret ways that people don't see. Your desires, they'll often be self-serving. And even your ability to perceive your brokenness, your sin, it gets blinded by self-deception. See, the road to Jerusalem demands that we bend a knee 
that we submit our hearts, that we confess our sins, that we surrender our lives. And you know, as I see it, there's only one thing that makes that possible because I cannot surrender to God unless I I trust that he is my best interest at his heart. I don't get on the plane unless I'm fairly certain that the pilot too wants to live. I, I can't surrender unless I believe God is my best interest at heart. I can't do it because otherwise, otherwise I'll always want to drive. I'll keep taking the wheel back. One writer put it this way, Jesus has a lot to say about death to self, but it's always the death of a lesser self or of a false self so that a better and nobler self can live. It's always death to desires and behaviors that wind up killing me anyhow so that I can come alive and thrive as the person that God made me to be. Life works better when Jesus is driving. And so today, my friends, we pull out on our four-week journey towards life. And you have to make the first decision. The road into Jerusalem requires it. See, you need to see yourself at the parade, in the upper room, at the supper. You need to ask yourself, what is my price? What expectations and agendas have I demanded of God that today, in order to get on the journey to life, believing that God has my best interest at heart, that today I lay down, I let die. Jesus said that we need to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily. Today, this day, every day, this conscious choice with the keys because whoever is driving is in control. You can, if you want to, live with a rebellious heart towards God. God, it's my car, my life, my keys, my way. I don't really have any interest. I'm gonna live the way I want. Just stay out of my way, stay out of my life. I'm not even gonna talk to you. I don't believe in you. So you can live with a rebellious heart if you want. There are a few people that live like that, but most of us, most of us, most of us live with a divided heart. See, we keep Jesus in the car, but we just keep driving. See, I'll keep this area, this pattern, this relationship, I'll keep this under my control. You can have that. I'm gonna hold on to this grudge. I'll enjoy this pleasure. I'll keep this habit. I'll retain this secrecy. I know, I know, God, that you want full surrender, but not not this. Friends, the, the road does not lead to resurrection life, renewal, purpose, and peace. That road doesn't. That road leads to nothing but hiding, Cover-ups, shame, blame, discouragement, disappointment. I don't know what you're holding on to. If it's your money, your time, ambition, career, kids, spouse, relationships, whatever has been that cost today, surrender it. Because there's life out there for you. You can find it. It's out there on the road. And the road goes towards Jerusalem. Look, don't die behind the wheel on the way to your own lifeless destination. There is only one thing that gives real peace in real life, and that is, oddly enough, a surrendered heart and a death to myself and my own ways and my expectations and my agendas. Jesus, again, he put it this way, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. It's a great exchange, but you get to make that choice. Today, we head out on the road 
into Jerusalem. That's where this season of Lent and preparation begins. Can I, can I ask you to take this seriously? What if God is not asking you to give up chocolate this year or wine? What if this year he's asking you to give up on your expectations and your agenda? This week, you have some questions to ask. Things like, what is my price? This week, you have some decisions to make. Like, who's driving the car? And what does that practically mean in my life? What changes need to be made if I were to toss the keys and surrender and give in in a very real way? What, what would it mean for me to choose to die to myself so that I could find life and live? And then, make sure you come back here next week because the road towards life, it rolls on.